0: This is the second episode in our series about the Revolutionary War, and today we're looking at it from the point of view of three slaves. Welcome back to Church History. Sorry this podcast is coming late. I'm really busy helping other podcasters. I love getting the chance to edit other podcasts for people and hearing the messages that they have. If you're interested in getting help for your podcast, or maybe starting a new one, please feel free to message me. I'm also really busy doing voiceover work for some books. Again, if you're interested in voiceover work, please feel free to message me. And I'm also still working on my book. I'm just about finished recording the audiobook, so... It will come out soon, I promise. If you would like to support this podcast, check out my Etsy store. It'll be in the show notes. It's mugs with quotes from church history. You get a great mug with a daily reminder from one of our forefathers, and you get to support this great podcast. Alright, so let's dive into today's episode. We are talking about the Revolutionary War. Although, again, as a reminder, this is a church history podcast. So we're looking at this time in history to see what God was doing. We have talked about slavery in a lot of episodes lately. Both George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards had views on slavery that it's difficult to understand today. We've told the story of John Newton, who became good friends with George Whitfield, and who inspired William Wilberforce, who we covered in three episodes. We're going to be talking a little bit about these men in today's story. Not covering their stories, but just mentioning throughout where they were during this particular story. I recommend going back and listening to those episodes if you haven't heard them yet. We begin in the year 1729. For a reference to where we were in church history, Jonathan Edwards had been married for just one year, and was starting his ministry by teaching at his grandfather's church. But our story doesn't start in the Americas. It starts in the savannas of West Africa. A little boy named Brotir is born to a prince. His father had three wives, but Brotir's mother was the first wife, and therefore Brotir was a special child in the tribe. When Brotir was very young, probably around the age of six, his parents had a fight. His father took another wife without first talking to Brotir's mother. In her rage, she took Brotir and left. She walked a long way and finally arrived at a farm. She left Brotir with the farmer. Suddenly, he was separated from everything he knew. Rotier was frightened, but the farmer was really kind and showed him how to help with the animals. It turned out Rotier really loved farming, but he missed his family. One day, a man from his old tribe came to the farm. He told Brotier his parents were together again, and he was taking them back to the tribe. While Brotier had enjoyed his time on the farm, he missed his family, and he was excited to return. When he returned, his life was suddenly completely overturned. Shortly after his return, a marauding army attacked the tribe. Brotier ran and hid with the other children. From his hiding place, he could see the army had captured his father. They tortured him, asking where the tribe's gold had been buried. Brotir's father refused to tell them. Brotir quietly watched until suddenly his father fell to the ground dead. At that moment, Brotir screamed and gave up his hiding place. He was captured. The men from the tribe and young Brotir were taken as prisoners. They were marched all the way to what is today Ghana and then put into a large white rock building. Brotir didn't know it, But he had just been sold, and was now a slave. A few days later, the men and Brotier, along with the rest of the people who were being held in this large building, were taken to a ship called the Charming Susanna. They were pushed down to the bottom of the ship. As Brotier entered the bottom of the ship, he was terrified. A smell he could not understand hit him. He could see chains and boxes. Each person was placed into a boxed area and they had chains put on them. There was no place to go to the bathroom or throw up, as the prisoners' bodies adjusted to the sway of the boat. They sat in their own fluids. After a short time, people became extremely sick. Smallpox broke out on the ship. Those who were seen as having smallpox were thrown overboard to stop the spread. They finally arrived at a dock. They were taken off and the prisoners were branded and stripped. But suddenly, a man came and took Brotier before he was branded. His name was George Mumford. George Mumford put Brotier back on the boat. But instead of the bottom area, he was taken to a different area, closer to where George Mumford stayed. Brotier could not understand what was happening. What had happened was that George Mumford saw something in young Brotier and he decided to buy him for himself, He used his bargaining stash of liquor to buy him. A bargaining stash at that time was called your Venture. Sir George Mumford started calling Brotier his Venture. And from that day forward, Venture was his name. Venture didn't realize it, but his life had been spared. The boat had landed in the Bahamas, and the slaves were sold to work in the sugar fields. Most didn't live more than two years under the conditions there. Venture traveled the rest of the way in a little bit more comfort. George Mumford had plans for Venture and it was in his best interest to be alive and healthy. They arrived in New England and Venture was left with George Mumford's sister. He was taught how to speak English, how to dress English, the proper way to eat and walk and talk. He learned quickly and was soon speaking English and acting like a proper little Englishman. When George Mumford returned... To pick up Venture, George was happy at the progress Venture had made. He took Venture and brought him to live at his home on his farm. There, Venture met his daughter Elizabeth and they became best friends. These were actually happy years. Venture had not quite yet grasped the reality of his life. As a young teen, he lived on the farm, hung out with Elizabeth and life seemed fairly good. It was during this time that George Whitfield came to America to the Georgia area, and set up his orphanage. Jonathan Edwards was preaching that slave owners needed to take proper care of slaves, and remember that they were all people made by God. He was preaching that churches need to be open to both slave and free, and that all were brothers and sisters in Christ. We talked about the contradictions of this type of sermon during our episode on Jonathan Edwards, but it is important to note that this was at the very start of the Great Awakening. Most of the people in the Americas at this time had walked away from God. It had become a place of violence and sin. The slave issue changed radically in 1738, when 80 slaves revolted in South Carolina and a battle ended, with 44 black men dead and 21 white men dead. People began to fear that the slaves may rise up and kill the white man. In 1741, a fire spread through New York, People began to blame it on a slave uprising, although there was never any evidence for that. Thirty-one slaves and four white men were hung or burned alive. One man took up to ten hours to die in the fire. It was brutal. People were afraid. The slaves were afraid for clearly obvious reasons, but also white people were afraid that slaves were going to revolt. Because of this fear, treatment of slaves became worse. Both Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield spoke out against these harsh treatments. It was that same year that Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. During this time, Venture was growing into a man. He was now in his twenties. He was no longer a small boy. He was very tall and extremely strong. One day, George Mumford bought another slave a black girl named Meg. Venture fell in love with her right away. They were married and soon a baby was on the way. He was a father. Then George Montford's farm was given to another family member and Venture and his wife and their new baby daughter Hannah were simply part of the farm. The new owner saw slaves the same way one might see cattle. One day a man named Thomas Statton came to the farm. He saw Venture who was in his 20s now Very tall and extremely strong. Thomas Stanton was willing to pay a lot of money for a strong man like that. And just like that, Venture was sold. He told Meg he would find a way to come for her and Hannah. At the Stanton farm, Venture started to work on his days off around town, saving all the money he could. He soon had quite a bit of money. One day, he overheard Thomas and his brothers talking. They had a loan they had to repay, And they were about to lose the farm. Venture got along well with the men and he knew that if the farm was sold he would be sold as well and that would make it even harder for him to find a way to get back to his wife and daughter. He told the Stanton brothers that he'd been working on his days off and he had money he could lend to them. They wrote a legal document to say they owed Venture the money and they promised to repay him. They were so thankful for his help that one day They showed up with his wife and daughter. They had bought them also. Venture was finally reunited with his family and soon after that, they had a son. People at this point were calling for freedom from England. They often used the term they were slaves to England and they wanted the slavery to end. There were some who thought, perhaps, if America was free, then the slave would be free as well. In 1760, Meg was beaten by Stanton's wife for not cleaning it properly. However, Meg defended herself and fought back. Venture heard the fighting and ran to help. He saw that Stanton's wife, with a whip, ready to hit Meg. He jumped in front of the whip and grabbed it out of her hand and threw it in the fire. It was clear. Venture was twice the size of this lady, and she had no power over him. She was suddenly frightened of the man who had lived there and served them well and it even helped them keep the farm. He was at that moment just a threat. She fled the room. Venture knelt down to clean up the fireplace and was suddenly hit in the back of his head with a large club. He grabbed the club and turned to see Thomas Staten. Venture was also much larger than Thomas, so he grabbed him as well. He then carried both Thomas and the club all the way into town and all the way to the sheriff's office and then demanded justice. Blacks had rights too, He could not be hit for no reason. The sheriff agreed, but Thomas said if he was punished, then all the slaves would uprise. The sheriff didn't want to have an uprising, so he told Thomas he would allow him to go unpunished, but he had to promise to treat Venture properly. At that point, Venture had been working in town on his days off for a long time. He was respected by people as a hard-working man with good manners. When Venture and Thomas got home, there was a group of men waiting for them. They put Venture in chains and held him without food for days. Thomas then came and stood before him with the legal document, promising repayment, and ripped it up. Shortly after that, a man named Oliver Smith was at the farm to buy Venture. He was separated from his family again. By that time, he had two boys, Solomon and Cuff. Mr. Smith was a kind man who believed that all men were created by God, and that all men should have the same rights given by God. He sat down with Venture and told him if he could work and pay him the money that he had spent to buy him, he would make him a free man. After some time, Mr. Smith called Venture in for a chat. He asked him how much money he had saved. Venture had saved 71 pounds, and he still needed 13 pounds. Mr. Smith handed him his paper. You're a free man, Venture. A free man in 1769. 38 years old, and he was now a free man. His first priority was to work and save the money he needed to buy his family. Mr. Smith spoke to Venture. A slave only had one name, but a free man, a free man had two names. Some freed slaves used the name free man as their last name, but other slaves, like Venture, who had good relationships with their owners, took their last name. It was a way of being seen as connected with the family and Venture was happy to be seen as part of the Smith family. He became Venture Smith. As soon as he had enough money to buy his children, he went to buy them. He bought his sons Solomon and Cuff. But Hannah had been sold to another farm, and he had to find her. At the same time he was looking for her, he was setting up jobs for his sons. His son, Solomon, got a job working on a boat and headed out to sea. Soon Venture Smith had found his daughter and bought her. And his wife Meg as well. The family would finally be together. Tragically, Solomon got sick while working on the boat and died before returning home. He was 17 years old. He only had a few months living as a free man and spent them working on a boat. Venture took his family and moved to Connecticut, where it was safer for free slaves. He bought a small piece of land. The idea of outlawing slavery was growing. In 1774, Rhode Island abolished slavery just two years before the War of Independence started. And in 1777, the state of Vermont declared itself an independent republic and became the first sovereign state to abolish slavery. The idea was spreading, although slowly. The Revolutionary War was raging at this point. There was hope among the slaves that a free country would bring freedom for all. Venture's son Cuff left to fight in the war. He was stationed under George Washington. Meg and Venture had another child, a little boy named Solomon Jr., in memory of their son who had died. During this time, both England and America offered slaves a chance to earn their freedom. If they fought alongside either England or America and won, they would be free. The problem was, if they picked the wrong side and they lost, they would not be free. Also, it was a war, so they could die. One man named James saw America as the only chance the black man had to be free. He decided to join George Washington and fight. In 1781, James signed up under the French fighter Lafayette, who was fighting with the Americans. Lafayette had a plan. He asked James if he would be willing to be a spy. One of the generals, Benedict Arnold, had left Washington's army and joined the British forces. He asked James to go to Benedict Arnold as a runaway slave, and join the British troops. He would work as his personal slave and send messages to Lafayette. James did it and it worked. Benedict Arnold liked him. Before he knew it, James was working in close contact with Lord Charles Cornwallis. He was basically ignored. He was invisible. So he stood quietly in the room while plans were formed. He heard everything and passed the messages to the Americas. It was James' message that helped the Americans win the Battle of Yorktown, which was the same battle that won the war and created the United States of America. Cuff Smith also fought in that same battle. At first, James was not given his freedom since he had signed up under Britain and not under the Americas. But Lafayette fought for James to get his freedom and James became a free man, James Lafayette. Cuff Smith also returned to his home. By the end of the war, Venture had bought most of the land around his home. He had 150 acres and was one of the largest landowners. He created a community where slaves who were freed could come and live and work and be paid and he helped them get land of their own. This was the same year that William Wilberforce became a Christian in Great Britain and started his mission of ending slavery. He was told that dream was impossible and his answer was, We're too young to understand impossible, so we will do it anyway. The call for the end of the slave trade in England was coming from the Whitfield brothers and the preacher John Newton, and now William Wilberforce. In America, there had been a dream and a hope for a free country, and that that free country would mean freedom for all. But very quickly, it was clear. The fight for freedom was only just starting. In Connecticut, where Venture Smith lived with his family, they passed a law of freeing slaves, but only those born after the law came into place, and only once they turned 25. A woman named Bet decided to take matters into her own hands. She would use the words of the Declaration of Independence and win her freedom. Bet had been born a slave in 1744 and at the age of seven was given as a gift to Hannah and John Ashley for their marriage. She lived with them and grew up and married and had a daughter of her own. Her husband fought in the Revolutionary War as a way to earn their freedom, but he died in the war. Bette never got along with Hannah, who was a very strict Dutch woman. One day, Hannah was beating a young slave girl with a shovel from the fire. Bet jumped in front of her and took the hit. She was left with a horrible, gaping wound. Shortly after this incident, Hannah and John Ashley were hosting a party full of very important people. Bet served them food but purposely refused to cover her wounds. People would see her and ask what happened. Bette would only say, ask the misses." Hannah was ashamed because she knew what she had done. As the men talked about their new free country, while Bette was serving them with her arm exposed, they were forced to look into the truth that not all of them were free. At this party, the men were reading from a document about this new country that they had created. All men are born free and equal, and have certain, natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberty, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, in fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. Mbeck could not read or write, but she was extremely smart, and she repeated this over and over to herself until she had memorized it. She then went to see a lawyer in town named Theodore Sedgwick. She quoted the passage and then said, Should I not legally be free? The lawyer agreed to take her case, and her case, Brett versus Ashley, was heard in August of 1781. They not only won the court case, but the Ashleys were forced to pay her for the work she had done. She became Elizabeth Freeman, and her lawyer, Theodore Sedgwick, hired her to work for him. And later, her daughter became a well-known author, who wrote her story. Venture Smith died an old man, just four years after the court case of Elizabeth Freeman. Three years after his death, the slave trade became illegal, and no more slaves would take the long trip that Brotier had taken as a child, while becoming Venture Fifty-five years after Venture Smith's death, Abraham Lincoln became the president. While slavery didn't end with the creation of America, the end of slavery started. It would take a generation to rise up and fight, but the end would come. We're going to spend more time on these stories in later episodes. In our next episode in the Revolutionary War series, we're going to be covering the life of the Adams Family we're going to ask the question that is debated often. Were they Christians or deists? And what did the belief in God mean for a young man who lived during this time? To make sure that you don't miss, please subscribe to this podcast. And if you could leave a review, that would be awesome. For more podcasts or blogs or to learn how I can help you with your podcast, check out my website, lauraleesiemens.com. And I'll see you next week.